Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Moss. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we are continuing what we talked about in our last episode. We talked about the possibility that it might become a series, and it has. Um, So we're going to continue talking about texts that are typically taught. And so a lot of times these texts are... You've done them enough times that you've lost your energy, you've lost your passion, you've lost your ability to maybe come at it with fresh eyes, but you still have to teach it. Yeah, and so So, we are thinking about these texts as um, sort of like pillars or foundational, or there's something that even though we're maybe a little burnt out on them, there's something really useful about them. Even if it's just that students who are in the English major are going to be asked about them later. And so they might be these these foundations or these pillars that help them uh, become the kind of like cultural, scholarly uh, critics that we, we kind of, our goal is for them to become at the end of the semester. There, that's one of the kind of drawbacks sometimes of being an English major, English teacher. You're expected to have read everything. And obviously you can't, but you still have to know certain texts to kind of get your foot in the door or even just be able to talk about like the influences for other texts that might be more exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something about like a balance between, you know, what are we teaching that's traditional to the canon and what thing, how are we stepping outside of that box? But Mm -hmm. it, it's a, it's necessary to balance it so that you're not just entirely always outside of the box because you, then you don't have the kind of foundations or entry points that might be necessary. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think about how many references you would miss if you had never read a work by Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You'd be like, who is this Romeo people keep talking about? Plus, <laughs> I enjoy Shakespeare for the fact that he just, like, created his own set of words. You know, whenever there wasn't some, like, a word that he liked to describe something, I was like, well, here's one now. We have it. Um, and so I always use Shakespeare to talk about, like, how language is fluid and... Uh, ever-changing. Yeah, you get to, as long as you're following some of the rules, you get to make up new ones. Yeah. But today we're not talking about Shakespeare. We are talking about two short story writers who are just so often included in the canon of pedagogy. I don't know what to call it, but they're always in intro to literature classes, short story classes. A lot of these students have encountered them in high school. So we're we're talking about Hemingway and Salinger, who I think at this point are almost equally beloved and reviled. Like everyone knows that Hemingway's an asshole, Salinger's kind of an odd bird, but you can't deny that they're geniuses. And so then that brings us to the point of you can be a genius and also be not the best person. Morality was never a requirement for intelligence. Yeah. Well, and I think it also brings us to question, like, is part of why they're considered, like, these sort of creative geniuses also about their positionality as, um, like, straight white men who were able to get a seat at the table. So I want to first jump into Hemingway um, and his story, Hills Like White Elephants. I feel like it's sometimes positioned as like one of the short stories, the American short stories. And just kind of 
I guess for context for my own experiences with the short story, I def we read it in one of my high school classes. I can't remember if I was a junior or a senior, but I think I was a senior. And we were told we weren't allowed to Google it before we came to class the next day. So we read it for homework and we weren't allowed to Google it. That was made, that was the rule. And it was because our teacher wanted us to guess what the surgery was, what the procedure she's having is without being, you know, being spoon fed the answer. And I remember fully thinking that this woman, he was encouraging this woman to have a lobotomy. That the, the phrases like, let the air in, I thought they were letting the air into her brain, all that sort of stuff. And so that class was so exciting to me as a student to, I kind of relished being wrong in a way because you got, I got to see how the pieces of the puzzle work together. And it was like almost looking at um, those those pictures where when you look at it from one angle, it's like the rabbit and the other angle, it's the duck or like it's a cup or an old woman, whatever. <laughs> and it got me really excited about realizing that authors can hide things that are meant to be found as much as they're spoon feeding you the answer. It was like the first time I really saw a text do that, like, oh, I have to figure this out. It's like not just reading along and watching a movie in my head. So that was really exciting for me as a student. And that's something I do try to recreate as a, a college instructor, except I know half the class has read it in high sure. school and knows the answer. Have you, have you like uh, used that, like the images where if you look at it from one point you see one thing but if you look at it from another point or even like those viral like what color is this dress mm. sort of things have you ever like used that as a way to introduce this concept no but that would be really fun yeah um I do it more I get and it actually would work really well with what we do do um we draw the setting on the whiteboard with the different colored markers because, you know, you get, like, that one side of the tracks is barren, the other side is so fertile. And so we draw that out because they don't really get it while reading it always, that there's this binary happening. Um, they're just taking in, like, okay, yeah, there's some, like, white hills and there's some green grass. And well, and we talk about, like, when you look it from one side of the tracks, you're seeing one, looking at the other. So that would work really well, I think, actually, like, that... we You never get to see the whole picture, right? Like, you're always seeing part of a picture, and that's the problem in the story that they're seeing the two sides of the same picture so that would be really cool actually maybe that might be look at that getting <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I think they would enjoy that um I and I also wonder about how you might also pair that story with some contemporary depictions of abortion mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I'm thinking um, about, like, Shonda Rhimes' Grey's Anatomy, and all of, at least two, well, actually, I'm thinking about Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, which both have depictions of abortions in them, and sort of, like, where the silences are, and, like, who knows what's going on, who doesn't know what's going on, when do, like, when does the audience know what's going on? Yeah, I love the idea of doing it with Grey's Anatomy or something with Shonda Rhimes, um, because they sometimes, again, we talked about last episode, like how students will sometimes pat themselves on the back um, about how far we've come. Abortion isn't necessarily one of those issues that students are like, yep, we've resolved that. But 
with a text like Hills Like White Elephant, I think they get so hung up on the fact that it's written in 1922 at the fact that it's still a conversation we have today of like, do you have an abortion or not? How do you get one? Who do you trust to give you advice about it? Uh, what are the ethics of it? And, ha- or, and how is that event portrayed in popular culture or contemporary yeah. text? Um, who do we like? Who do we blame? Who do we shame? <clears throat> Stuff like that. That's actually something we sort of talk about with them drinking beer in the and, and I think they have absinthe too um, in the train station and talking about that this is the 1920s. So thinking about prohibition and how American readers would take on like two unmarried people traveling together, drinking together. Like these are people living on the edge. And how does Hemingway negate like the, this so-called reckless living with sympathy and empathy of recklessness doesn't necessarily mean irresponsibility or, and how do we think about like, women who make these choices? How do they get portrayed? And so that kind of leads into something that I have done with my students in the past teaching this is um, I often use this as an intro text. So we're able to use all those literary terms those standard literary terms that we expect our students to know. So if we think about like Bloom's taxonomy again, that remembering and identification. So there's sort of like Things that aren't as exciting, but just understanding like, okay, my students know how to find these in a text that doesn't just hand it to them on a platter. Um, But then we use this story to take the next step of once you can remember, how do you apply? And so using different critical theories. So their homework a lot of times is to read like summaries of some critical theories in addition to this text. And then they come in and we go over the parts, and then we talk about how those parts might be used in a feminist read of this story. So they point out to things like, it's the man and the girl. (laughs) So already that imbalance of power in the character names, and we go from there, and then breaking them up into small groups, and each group gets a different critical lens to pick from. They do their own readings, and we talk about as a class, like how we all have the same parts, we all have the same amount of information, but when we apply them differently, we come to slightly different interpretations that reveal different components and, and meanings of the text or emphasize different things. So like an eco-crit read, maybe they talk about how we see value in fertility and what does that mean for infertility? Or um, in a Marxist read, like they break down like the power dynamic of who gets to <laughs> exert control in that, um, etc. So they start taking on that role of the critic of deciding what's important in the story and what is the significance of it and and starting to feel confident in their ability to do that. That if they can do it with Hemingway, they can do it with anyone. And so also it sounds like what you're doing is using this as a time to create critical readers who uh, see themselves as as the agents of power and not necessarily the author. So it's not really about like what the author wants of us here, but it's more about our critical um, reading of this text. And so this also can be a place to bring in someone like Roland Barthes and his essay, The Death of an Author, so that we can yeah. um, A, begin to consider what it means to work on the text versus being worked on by the author. Mm -hmm. And we can also begin to consider how uh, 
again that like that that image of the the creative genius who is also problematic so what's the value of still looking at their work um and how do we do that in a way that interrogates our role and their the author's role and those two as being in separate spheres yeah and what you said about like being worked on i think also brings up something i like I think this text helps me do in the classroom is to start to separate them from looking for a moral in the text to reading for themes, reading for significance, reading to talk about culture, whatever. Uh, Because it is just that, that a lot of times students think that a text is meant to work on them. Um, So what's the moral of the story? What is it supposed to teach us? But I just want to like kind of take a side step rabbit hole to talk about just how I think this is one of the larger problems we have in literature classrooms that a lot of students enter it thinking that the that we read text always to be taught something to absorb that knowledge um and so that's why we get pushback when we have our students read novels or works about homosexuality or promiscuity or abortions or drug use or whatever because they think they're being told that this is how you do it and they're like well I'm against that and it's like I mean I don't want to get into the ethics of all of those but at the end of the day reading as we know reading a gay a novel about gay characters does not make one gay (laughs) and so and so we're not reading it as a how-to manual getting them beyond that. So thinking like with Hills Like White Elephants, this isn't a story that's telling you this is, you should have an abortion or you should not have an abortion. It's a short story that's about how do we make this decision? How does this one couple make this decision? Um, and we don't know what decision they make. It's so ambiguous at the throughout the whole thing. So I think that helps students transition out of that, where that expecting a text to work on them as you said, to switching that role of, oh, I get to work on the text. Oh, and then you get a lot less resistance with other texts throughout the semester, I found. And I think that that also works in a way to help us take the author off of the pedestal um, Mm. as sort of a, a moral guidepost for us. Because again, what we keep coming back to is that Hemingway and Salinger are maybe not the best moral guideposts and we don't want them to be. Uh, and Mm -hmm. so how do we, that process of saying that no, not every text is giving us a moral. Um, not every text has a good take on this particular thing. Um, text and authors alike can be problematic. And so part of our job is to say that no one's above the reproach of critique, no matter how much, how invested we are in that text. Um, and so, bef- yeah. yeah, so for me, we were talking before we started about J.K. Rowling and how um as someone that identifies as like part of the harry potter generation right where those books were coming out (laughs) um like i read the first one in third grade and then they were with me throughout high school and so um it can be hard to take like that like that figure of the author off of the pedestal uh but we can and still like be invested in those books and those characters um, without sort of, uh, what's the word, like idealizing the the author? The author is not the work and vice versa. And we can 
love a text and recognize the writer's failings. And, and I think that's something that's important to keep in mind, too, that not just in the classroom, but just talking about culture, that sometimes people feel when we talk about the, fa- the personal failings of creators, we're saying that anyone who's a fan of them is a bad person. And, you know, sometimes there are certain people that you're fans of, maybe you're questionable, but in general, you can be fans of works created by flawed people and their morals aren't reflected on you necessarily. And same, so... Well, yeah, and I think that you still... The kind of trick with that is you still have to do the work, right? So mm-hmm. I was... Um, I really like Emily Nussbaum's essay, Confessions of the Human Shield, where she talks about Woody Allen and seeing him as, like, a North Star her entire, like, adolescence. But at some point, the switch of seeing, like, oh, okay, some of his films are very problematic in reference to who he is as a person. And so we have to be able to, A, not conflate, like, being invested in a text with taking the side of that person's particular flaws but also we I don't think that we can gloss over those flaws or not bring them into conversation when we're working on a text that kind of touches on what we were talking about last week of the good and the bad all gets mixed together so you can't throw out the bad always without losing the good but you can't throw out the good without losing the bad (laughs) um so to figure that out that balance I guess this is the what's underpinning a lot of our conversations is how do we reach this balance in the classroom um and so thinking about that i i don't know do you want to say anything more about hemingway or do you want to talk start talking about salinger and that sort of balance that tricky balance he brings of yeah let's personal and public right let's talk about salinger um who was a pretty elusive figure in the public eye mm-hmm. uh, and didn't like having a public spotlight on him. And it's impossible, I think, to not consider why he maybe didn't like that public eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I teach uh, Salinger. I've done, in an intro to literature class, uh, like several of his short stories. And then, but I know you do the Perfect Day for Banana Fish, Margaret. Yeah, and so I've talked to you about this before, that in general, like, I just love that story in terms of it has that ending that the first time you read it, it's total shock, and it feels like the rug's been pulled out from underneath you, and most of my students will say this too, that they immediately reread it, and on that rereading, you're like, oh, all the pieces were there the whole time. He gave us everything. It's not that this came out of nowhere, and it's not like... He has the shock end for the sake of it. Um, you know, like, this is going to be unfair of me, but that movie, Remember Me, I haven't seen it. I just know that it's, like, you, this, like, dramatic romance, and then at the end it's just like, at 9-11! <laughs> like, where it's like, oh. Right. Well, what is that? So that, like, for this story, the, sh- the shock is part of the thematic significance. And so that's the first thing my students always talk about. And that allows us to talk about, like, structure of short stories, cohesiveness, all that, all that good stuff. But the second thing they talk about is the scene where he kisses the little girl's foot. And they're like, very uncomfortable with it. 
but they're also embarrassed that they feel uncomfortable. They feel like they're prudes. They feel like they're projecting something, that they're the ones who are dirty for seeing something maybe dirty. So we talk about Salinger's personal life and that his relationships with young women like Jean Miller, who says good things about him, but also includes the fact that she had a friendship with him as a child, felt very close to him. They wrote letters. She got older. They had sex, and then he never talked to her again. Yeah. And hearing that, they watch an interview with her, um, and they feel validated and vindicated. Like, oh, I'm not the creep for seeing it. He's the creep. So we talk about, like, that authors' failings can enter the text, and sometimes you can go with your gut instinct. Research it to see if you can support it, but the author isn't more right than you always that about the meaning of the text or yeah. the way the text works. So yeah, it gives them a place to start being like, oh, like Salinger doesn't mean for that to be creepy, but that doesn't mean it's not. Right. And I think that my students have almost the exact reaction, right? And, and you mm-hmm. described it really perfectly that they are very uncomfortable with that scene and they're not sure if they should be uncomfortable because they're like surely he doesn't mean for it to be uncomfortable and and this is one of those moments where we get to say it doesn't matter what he meant there you are the reader you are able to point to some examples as to why you feel that this is problematic or uncomfortable you're right then it means that the vice of that author is somehow has made its way into the story and i don't want to mean that like we should always read stories through the lens of authors biographies and i go over that with my students too but i think sometimes students are so hesitant to think that someone who's so great could could make this sort of scene intentionally or not and for them to be like, no, this is an example of blurred boundaries. A, a strange man should not be kissing another child or touching another child this way. It's not that men can't be affectionate with children, but they're strangers. Yeah. <laughs> they have met at this hotel. Well, and I think that we're back to balance here. That there has to be a balance between understanding the biography of the author and how it might be relevant to the story. But... Yeah. Also, sometimes how it's not relevant. I think it's, like, it's helpful for them to see, like, a flaw in the author to realize the author is not this monolithic genius who has no imperfection and is totally pristine. That once they realize, oh, he did have flaws, and also these flaws that are strangely relevant, it's not that we have to say, oh, this scene was inspired by a real-life person or anything like that, but just to know that it puts the cracks in that illusion that they can start to be like, okay, so we can read against the grain. We can say maybe Salinger didn't have it all right and no author has it all right. Yeah. Um, I say that as someone who loves Salinger's works. Yeah, so <laughs> I like think. I said, I've, I have taught nine stories before in an introduction to literature class and mm. I like it for thinking about world building and how these characters mm. are, like they reappear. And how it's different than in a novel where there's this sort of, unless we're thinking like really postmodern, but there's like these very connected characters in a novel. Mm -hmm. Um, But in a series of short stories, like like nine stories, they reappear and we can read them differently because they reappear, because they're connected to a larger world, but it's still fragmented in a lot of ways. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so... 
I, it's interesting to them, uh, and it's almost like a puzzle because yeah. they have this moment of being like, oh, was that character in another one of these short stories? Well, what does that mean? Do I, Can I glean anything from looking at these two in comparison? That's really would be really useful, too, for just teaching them to start thinking about other texts in conversation, going beyond just that compare-contrast of... These novels both feature protagonists who are teenagers. They are both set in a, you know, where right. it's very, the, the diptych. Yeah, it's just <laughs> straightforward. Yeah, but then thinking about the, like, oh, what, how do these connections change the way I read one of these texts? Or how does knowing one text help me better understand the other? And going from there, that's that would be cool. Which text are they, in nine stories do they tend to draw to? They like For Esme with Love and Squalor. And then I think that we also, I feel like Uncle Wiggly in Connecticut is one that they also really like. I have always wanted to do Franny and Zoe, though, myself. Have you have you read mm-hmm. Franny and Zoe? I have. Not for a while. And so for some reason, the only scene that's coming to mind right now is him in the bathtub. Yeah. I know, like, her story's like the date, but the bathtub scene just always strikes me. I would like, I've not taught that one, but that's one that I I would like to teach in the future. Um, I haven't because I am confused by it sometimes also. <laughs> yeah. No, I get that. I think there'd be something interesting there, especially with, like, YouTube and influencer culture making, like, child stars, I think, more prevalent. Mm. And so thinking about that, like, psyche of celebrity and greatness and what that does when it's given to you as a child Mm -hmm. and and that fog, because I think that's something... Uh, that Salinger was almost ahead of his time on thinking through that um, early greatness or and being told that you're special, but what happens later on? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That specialness hasn't paid off. Yeah. I also think it would be interesting to teach something like Franny and Zoe and some of the short stories just because of their tone with mm-hmm. someone like Madeline Lingle, not uh, A Wrinkle in Time, but some of her other texts about like love and life that aren't sci-fi-ish. Because I think that they have similar tones, but very different takes on like womanhood and war and um, family that I would be really interested in thinking more about. What was that uh, story that went viral a few years ago about the girl who who has goes on those dates with the guy? She's like a college-age girl who goes on a series of bad dates with the guy who lives in the area. It's like cat lady or cat person. I always want to call it cat dude because the guy in college I knew that was his nickname. Um, you know what I'm talking about? I don't. Tell us. I'm not going to do a good job talking about it. I think it is called Cat Person. And it caught, it went viral because it had this con- started this conversation about the different perspectives men and women have about dating and hookup culture right now. And that women might feel pressured into certain situations. And it's not that it's rape. But it's also not that you feel fully your full agency in the moment. Mm. 
And so a lot of people were uh, were like, this this is the problem. Women don't want to take responsibility. And other people were like, this is the problem. Men don't want to hear. And, and kind of this conversation about like, well, what what is the balance, I guess? But it, it, what you're talking about with tone also just made me think of this because I think it would be interesting to pair with uh, Franny's story and thinking about the way we write about bad dates, bad, and the the etiquette of it and the etiquette of it in that moment, um, like that cultural moment. So the way Franny is supposed to handle like a bad date is not the same way like today we would necessarily, mm-hmm. but also in some ways is exactly the right, same. Right. And so how do we depict it? How do we get into the interior? Do we show both perspectives? Is that more effective? Whatever. Um, I didn't think about it till just now, so I don't really have anything to thought out, but there might be something there about, like, dating in literature. Yeah. Especially, like, dating is more of a modern concept than we think of sometimes. Right. Yeah, so I think that maybe is an idea for, like, a dream class. Yeah. Salinger. Maybe not the best (laughs) example (laughs) of dating, but... We gotta start somewhere. Right. I guess. Do we want to talk about the dream classes and wrap things up, or am I hurrying? Ahead? I don't. I, th- I think we're ready to talk about our dream course. Um, yeah. So, what's your dream well, course this week? Well, I, in prepping for this podcast, I was thinking a lot about Madeline Lingle, and I would love to teach a class like, um, just like an author study class of her, because she's often pigeonholed as like a young adult author and. But she write, She wrote nonfiction. She wrote adult literature. She's really interested in um, science. And again, she also gets sort of pigeonholed as um, a really Christian author. And I think that her faith is important to her and important to her text. But she describes herself as like an armchair Protestant. Um, and so I think that somehow, some in some ways, that gets like she gets steamrolled by that identity mm-hmm. um and so I would be really interested in doing like an author study class about her this is not would not help you with an author study class but the way you were describing Langle makes me think a little bit of Margaret Atwood that when I teach her I'm always so surprised by how much she's covered like in terms of genre approaches mm-hmm. all that I'm like how does she have time in the day um like I think she's a patent for a specific kind of pen probably like, right yeah <laughs> that's a niche topic like Madeline Lingle right but thinking about her in relation to Atwood would be really interesting as well yeah I, I think there might be something there about like how I don't know female authors and multiple genres I, I just well and also I think about creating feminist knowledges yeah maybe that's what it is that I'm thinking I don't have anything intelligent to contribute beyond that you just have me thinking I'm like huh yeah cool <laughs> I take that class I loved many waters that I read many waters more times than I read a wrinkle at time <laughs> I am a huge fan of her and I've read like most of her books but what's really fun about Madeline Lingle is that if you go to any sort of like used bookstores you can find some of her more obscure books I've just randomly found um some text and she does a lot of the same like world building where we see characters that are repeated so like we might see like Meg's granddaughter be the protagonist Mm. of a book and it's it's really interesting yeah 
That is. Like, that genealogy across, like, books and time and... Your dream course for this week is much more fleshed out than mine, uh, because mine is now just inspired by our conversation today. I want to do a dream course on dating and literature. Yeah. And just thinking about what that would include. No texts are immediately coming to mind. I'm looking at my shelf. Well, you'd have to do, like, all the viral, like, the Snapchats that go viral... Oh, yeah. Um, those narratives, those, like, long-form tweets mm-hmm. about when people are like, I'm at a restaurant, and this couple next to me is breaking up, and then 200 tweets later, you're like, but are they broken up yet or not? How is this still mm-hmm. going? <laughs> and you could talk about serialization with that, like, how serialization yeah. has changed. Maybe, I don't know, does Dickens have any good dating? Hmm. Um, Would you start that far back is the question. No, maybe. I was thinking, I don't know why um, Great Expectations comes to mind in terms of like, right? Is that the one with Miss Havisham? Yeah. Love them and leave them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't know if I'd go that far back though because I think I'd want to think more about this concept of like marrying for love rather than stability because... I think we have this romanticization of, like, you're looking for your soulmate. You, you date to find that. And as you're dating, you realize, oh, no, security and stability is very important, too. <laughs> like, I do not just want this passionate relationship with this person who can't show up on time mm-hmm. or, like, contribute to the bills <laughs> or be trusted to make dinner. <laughs> like... Um, it, it is still, like, we want that security and stability, like, men and women, um, and, but you, you're dealing still with this, this guise of, like, oh, don't be a gold digger, don't be shallow, like, you only live once, um, that I think really starts to emerge 1950s. So maybe I would do something, now that when I say 1950s, it makes me think of, um, The Price of Salt, or Carol, mm-hmm. by, um, Patricia Highsmith. And how Therese is dating around. Uh, and she kind of thinks about those rules like some people, like she knows people are having sex. They're starting to have, like, it's more becoming more and more of a norm, but she's not ready. And how that positions her. Um, at what point do you travel to Europe together in a relationship that you're no longer dating? You're steady or engaged to be engaged. Um, what about the Great Gatsby? Oh, that could be interesting. Thinking about, like, the shift from courting to dating. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever told you this. My great-grandmother wrote a memoir for her grandchildren, so my mom's generation. So that way they'd have, you know, know what she went through. What, what she went through makes it sound very dramatic. It's not like that. Um, but she was in Paris in the 20s. Um, she went to study French literature and opera, that she wanted to be an opera singer. And... You know, she's at French cafes, (laughs) and that's where she meets my great-grandfather, who I need to translate it, because I don't know what... She writes it in French, and I haven't looked it up yet, but he orders something in French, thinking he's going to impress her, and she's... It's an eye-roll moment for her, where she's like, ugh, this pretentious (laughs) douchebag, essentially. Um... But it is, like, it's funny because it's sort of that, like, early dating, like, going out with your friends, <laughs> meeting people, and you're away from home. You don't have that adult supervision telling you, 
this is who it's appropriate for you to be seen sure. with, interact with. Um, so that level of chaperoning and who's watching, I think really, I think that's one reason you start to see that change in the, in the 20th century, because it's easier for teens and young adults to leave home. You have cars, you have ships, <laughs> you can go to a new town. and Yeah, I mean, and you could compare it to something like uh, one of Austen's marriage plot novels. Yeah, taking a turn around the yard, garden. <laughs> okay, so that's exciting. I like, I think that's a really fun class. Or could be. Yeah, it could be. I'd have to make it more specific, but I, I am interested in this idea. But it can come up for another time. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So well, we'll talk to you later. Bye.